Hi, I'm Vashi Kapelos, and welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, January 28th. On the show this week, what a week it's been in Canadian politics. Federal Cabinet Minister Kent Hare is out after allegations of inappropriate behaviour and accusations of sexual misconduct have forced the resignation of Ontario Progressive Leader Patrick Brown. We'll talk to Deputy Federal Conservative Party Leader Lisa Wright about the allegations rocking politics across the country. Then, as the Me Too movement hits Canada, what now? We'll unpack the politics, plus a conversation with George W. Bush's former speechwriter David Frum about his new book on President Trump and why he won't ever leave the Republican Party. But first, last week, three politicians across the country were forced to step aside because of allegations of inappropriate behavior or sexual misconduct leveled against them. In Ontario, progressive conservative party members are scrambling to unite the party months ahead of a provincial election after their leader, Patrick Brown, was forced to resign within hours of a hastily arranged news conference. First, I want to say these allegations are false, categorically untrue, every one of them. I will defend myself as hard as I can with all means at my disposal. And late last week, Kent Hare, Minister of Sport and Persons with Disabilities, was forced out of Cabinet amid allegations of sexual harassment and inappropriate behaviour. Joining me now from Toronto to discuss the fallout from all these allegations and how it's affecting politics and politicians is Lisa Wright, Deputy Conservative Party Leader. Hi, Ms. Wright. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure, Vashi. Thanks for asking me to come on. What was your reaction when you found out about the allegations facing Patrick Brown? Well, it came on the heels of Jamie Bailey in Nova Scotia as well, having to resign over inappropriate conduct that was investigated, and they came to a conclusion that Mr. Bailey had to, had to resign. And then that evening, of course, was Mr. Brown and, and, and Cabinet Minister Hare not soon thereafter. And, and what my thought was, um, good for these girls, these women, for coming forward and making complaints. And in one case, it was a complaint made within the workplace, in Jamie Bailey's case. And in the case of Patrick Brown, unfortunately, um, the, the ladies had to come to the extent of going to media in order to talk about what their concerns were. So for me, it was uh, incredibly brave for those women to come forward. I want to ask you about Mr. Hare in a bit, but but with yeah. Mr. Brown, uh, mm -hmm. obviously a lot of speculation that these had there had been rumors out there for a while. Did you have any idea, since a lot of these allegations occurred at the time he was an MP, did you have any idea uh, about these rumors? Had you heard anything? So, Bashi, you and I both work on Parliament Hill. You know there's gossip all the time. Lots of people have stories about other people. I've been the subject of gossip. Um, and lots of other MPs can say the same thing. But there's a big difference between somebody whispering about somebody else and somebody having a valid complaint that they took to either somebody in their workplace or, uh, in the case of these two ladies, to the press. And that's where the difference is. It's very difficult to have unsubstantiated claims to be whispered about and, and go from there. But to have people come forward and publicly say, either to a colleague in a workplace or to say to the media that this happened to me and I want to let you know this happened to me. That's a very different uh, instance. That has never happened to me in Ottawa. That's happened to me in my constituency and I did act on it. Uh, but not in Ottawa. It's only about gossip and innuendo and trying to see what's right and what's wrong. We do need to have the people who are affected to come to us in order for us to get to the right process and the right result. And sorry, what did you mean by it happened to you in your constituency? 
There was a, there was a claim by somebody else in my, not in my constituency office, but a, a woman in the community complained that she had a, a, a allegation that she had made about inappropriate conduct, and it was not in my party. She went public with it. I did bring it to her party's um, her party's attention, and you know it was one of those things that I felt very strongly about that. Um, she had a valid complaint, and I passed it along into the right process, and I, and I hope that she got some, some satisfaction out of the process she went through. I, I didn't follow up with her. I thought it was her privacy, but certainly I listened to her, and I passed it on the way it should, and I would do that for anybody today if they had the same issue. Do you think, Patrick Brown, it's enough that, that he resigned as party leader? Should he have resigned as an MPP? Mm, that's for Patrick to make a decision. There is absolute clarity for me on this, that with these allegations over his head, that he was not going to be able to lead the Conservatives in Ontario into the next election because every discussion would be about these allegations. Um, the second part is, of course, his caucus has a lot to say about what level of uh, decorum that they expect from a leader and from a member of their provincial parliament. So for that's for them to decide. As far as the member of provincial parliament, that really is Patrick's decision. And at the end of the day, it's going to be the people of Barrie who make a choice on whether or not they want to keep their member of provincial parliament. But in the meantime, you know, Patrick has denied the allegations. He will go through the due process that he's afforded in this case. But it doesn't take away from the fact they're serious allegations and people in positions that we are in, in leadership, are held to higher standards. And this does matter. You mentioned the upcoming election. Are you considering leading the party or throwing your hat into the, into the ring, I guess? I want to make sure that we win in June of this year. That has always been my goal, and that's why I've been working so hard even before Christmas to help the new candidates to be able to fundraise or to have meet and greets. Um, that being said, it's the caucus that's going to be making the decision on the path forward, and I respect the caucus and their decisions, and I hope that when they're choosing um, what the process is going to be for a new leader, they take into consideration that there's 200,000 new members out there who have a keen interest in making sure that the Kathleen Wynne government is defeated in June. And this is a very important choice they're going to be making going forward. And we don't have the luxury of waiting for another election. We really do need to make sure we put our best foot forward to Ontarians in this election coming up, because Ontarians want change. So it sounds to me like you're not ruling it out, but it will depend on the process the party puts forward. Process is going to be a very important consideration because I trust and I respect the caucus. And as I said, I, I hope that they're taking into consideration and the executive is considering all of those people who in good faith bought memberships and they want to say and who the leader is. Before we go, I do want to ask you about Kent Hare, uh, the prime yeah. minister, of course, uh, kicked him out or he, he resigned, I'm sorry, from, from cabinet, uh, but he didn't resign from caucus. Is that the right call? I, I can't speak for the Liberal Party, but there does seem to be um, a bit of a difference between how they've treated other members of their caucus, Mr. Kang and, and Mr. Tutu, with respect to allegations being made. I don't know where they are in investigation of Mr. Kang or investigation of Mr. Hare. I'm sure they have a lot of investigations going on right now. And I hope that they do end up concluding these because that's the important part of a process that if a claim is made um, that is not in good faith, a process that's solid will also be able to determine those. So I know that there's a lot of fear out there of people talking about, well, it's very difficult to be a member of parliament these days, and I'm going to worry about this and worry about that. 
if you have the right policies and process in place, there's nothing to worry about. These things are dealt with appropriately, and we've been doing it for 20 years within the workplaces that I've ever worked in, you know, and, and we want to have good relationships within the workplace, and, and that's why these policies are there, to ensure that you can't have claims that are just there to be hurtful, and when claims are valid and very concerning, they get dealt with in a rapid way. Okay, thanks very much for your time, Ms. Raid. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, Vashi. Thank you. Inappropriate behavior, sexual harassment, sexual misconduct. In recent months, we have heard from many women who have come forward to tell their story. And last week, those stories hit the political landscape, landscape I'm sorry, in this country, forcing three political leaders to resign. So how is this changing the political conversation? Joining me now is longtime political journalist Susan Delacourt and in Toronto, Supriya Devetti of 640 Toronto Global News Radio. My colleague, thank you both very much for being with us. I appreciate it. Susan, I'm going to start with you. You've been covering politics here in Ottawa for decades. Have you ever seen anything like what we just saw transpire? No. It seems that it's all been put on fast forward. You know, you've seen, you see culture change here in Ottawa, but not literally, it does seem overnight. Um, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be an interesting year. I don't think it's over yet. Uh, I think a year from now, we'll be wondering, you know, we'll be seeing what happened this past week as, as, a, as a pivotal moment. Supriya, do you think this is, I mean, it's been sort of described as a quote-unquote reckoning. Do you see it that way? I mean, I see it uh, a long time coming. Uh, Susan will know better than I will, and I'm sure, Vashi, you've had your own experiences, but Ottawa and political life in general is often rife with this sort of behavior. And that's not to say that uh, there are a bunch of men walking around that are, you know, serial harassers or predators, but what happens is it ends up being very much a culture of complacency. So because there are no mechanisms or formal procedures in place, uh, often it's, well, let's look the other way for the good of the party. And I want to ask you guys a bit later about those those mechanisms or lack thereof. But I know, Supriya, we've talked before about a lot of the feedback mm -hmm. we get about this conversation that, that's going on. And I think, you know, there's a bunch of pieces that have come out, for example, saying that these are unfounded allegations. They're not proven. Uh, so how can these guys be losing their careers over what, what are actually, you know, whether serious or not, they are allegations. And I'm wondering what you think about that. So I think to anybody who thinks that, uh, they need to really parse the fact that being held in a criminal court of law and being, you know, found guilty or innocent beyond a reasonable doubt is very different than uh, dealing with workplace harassment in a work environment. And I think that's for all sorts of good reasons. But I also think uh, journalists and those of us in the media also need to pull back the curtain a little bit to let people know that we don't just write stories and take things to broadcast or print uh, because of the willy-nilly allegations or rumors or innuendo. You know, there, there is a, a fact-checking mechanism that's in place, and there are ways that, that journalists verify stories. And so if somebody is taking an allegation like this to print by a reputable media organization and by reputable journalists, then it's not the same as something you're relaying something back that you heard in a bar from somebody who heard it from a friend. And let me ask you about that, Susan, specifically in the, in the case of Kent Hare, because that, yeah. those allegations did arise on, on Twitter in the first place. And, and of course, the, you know, the process goes on in media, but then you've got these out there, and they haven't been filtered anyway. And uh, what do you make of that? Yeah, I think there, uh, Supriya made a really good distinction there, too. There are basically three places of, uh, and there's three speeds at which the court of public opinion is working now, or, or justice is working. There's, there's the, the, the court's 
the legal system, that's slow and, and long and arduous. And that's what people are saying, you know, where, why don't we have due process and witnesses and testimony? That's a, a slow, long, involved process. Then there, the other extreme, there's the Twitterverse, you know, mm -hmm. where things are crazy. It happens, it, careers are destroyed overnight. I like the middle ground too. I think that, that the media right now is in a perfect spot to be the middle ground between, you know, to, to actually investigate these and, and, um, and put them to some kind of test. I agree. We're not, this isn't happening willy-nilly. I, I do, I confess, I do have some reservations too about how quickly, as Patrick Brown said, the court of opinion is moving and the, the ability to destroy people's careers. Um, it does feel a bit like mob or frontier justice right now on, the, on Twitter and, and Facebook, but I think... So what do we do about that? How I, do you, you it's know, slow I'd it down, slow it down a bit, and, and I think everybody's got to you know, uh, chill out, but I, I actually do think this is a good role for the media, you know, that, uh, that take it seriously and, um, and take people seriously, but I think we've, we, we've got to be careful, too, that we're not just, uh, we haven't turned into a bunch of villagers with torches. And what do you think about that, Supriya? Do you think things are moving too quickly? Um, I think it can definitely be seen that way, especially when you have, in a period of, of 24 hours, you know, three leaders, uh, political leaders, being taken down by allegations of this sort. But I think it's also the other side of the coin of that is that, you know, women have put up with a whole heck of a lot, and men too, on, on the Hill and, and other places where, um, you know, where political legislatures are. But, but I do think that when we're talking about uh, Twitter, uh, it shouldn't always be translated onto real life. So whereas things are definitely moving fast on Twitter, I don't think that's necessarily true of the general, um, you know, public as well, because everything in Twitter tends to be a little bit ramped up. And I want to sort of bring up and touch on a point that you brought up a bit earlier uh, on the primacy and the significance of the, the process that's in place and, and what happens. Because I remember thinking a few weeks ago, an article in the Calgary Herald, Herald came out about Darshan, the investigation into Darshan Kang, who's also accused of sexual misconduct. There is no way of finding out, and I asked the House of Commons myself, the Speaker's office, what happens in that investigation? What point it's at? Um, you know, what's going on in the process? Uh, do you think that's a problem? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think there definitely needs to be a, a transparent process in place, and I think we should definitely finding out uh, the public and as well as the media so they can then report it to the public of what went on, because then how is anybody supposed to have trust in the institutions for taking part and, and you know, going about a, a thorough investigation, which is what the line we've been hearing from the Liberals, right, is that there will be a, a thorough independent investigation looking into this, and if that's the case, then okay, show us, show us the results. And what about you, Susan? What do you think about how how, how the process works right now. And, and the Liberals are also saying that their new legislation, they think, will help solve that. Do you think it will? Yeah, well, you know, we do. We are in the Wild West right now. It does feel a bit like frontier justice. And so I, I do think anything that makes it a little more transparent, I think people are out there are concerned, rightly, not just men, women too, are concerned that somebody's career and reputation in life can be destroyed by an anonymous allegation. It, it, it gives... It, presents the potential to make mischief with somebody, you know, that, that um, especially in politics, where dirty tricks can be played so much too. So um, I think, you know, we're at the, as I said at the beginning, we're at the beginning of all of this. I think um, this is going to be an important point, but I think that we're going to have to put some rules and transparency around it too. And who, who, whose responsibility is that? 
Everybody, including the public, you know, including the public. I've been listening to some open line shows too, where the public seems to be quick to rush to justice on one side or the other too. And there, you know, we're in a world of the disappearing middle, but so, you know, a cautious middle of the road view on things like this is not a bad idea. Okay, I'm going to have to leave it there. Thank you both very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Canadian David Frum became a naturalized American citizen after serving in the Bush administration. He's been a registered Republican for years, but in the last U.S. election, he voted against their chosen leader, Donald Trump. He explains why in his new book, Trumpocracy, the Corruption of the American Republic. I sat down with him late last week. Here's that conversation. Okay. Hi, Mr. Frum. Thanks very much for joining Thank us. You. Nice to have you on the program. Thank you. Uh, your book has just made the New York Times bestseller list. Are you surprised at all about the level of interest, the public interest, in anything to do with Donald Trump? Um, I saw a little joke on Instagram a couple of days ago, things that didn't exist in 2007, the iPhone, Instagram, the nameless sense of dread with which you woke up every morning. <laughs> uh, I think people are afraid. Um, these are prosperous times. The U.S. economy is expanding. Canada is getting the benefit. But people sense that something is ter has gone terribly wrong uh, in the United States. It can affect Canada. It can affect the rest of the world. And it makes them fascinated. Do you think it's just fear? Or do you think, because I have a sense from some people that it's more just like watching a car wreck. And I'm not implying that it's necessarily all negative. Yeah. Like you said, the economy is doing well and we get a lot of feedback about that. But is it just sort of like you can't turn your eyes away? Well, uh, Donald Trump is not a quietly sinister person. He is a noisily flamboyant person. So no question that there are these spectacular things. And there's also a, an element of buffoonery to the presidency, that Donald Trump could be more effective if he kept his mouth shut. He can't do that because he needs attention as much as he needs to um, make him, enrich himself as president. So there are a lot of things that grab the attention. I think, you know, in the end, this show would get old if it didn't seem that there was so much at stake. Do you think he is a buffoon, as he's been painted, or is he the stable genius that he describes himself, or is it somewhere in between? Um, I think he's wily. Uh, I mean, like, look, like every journalist in Washington, I read the Wolf book with right. uh, absorption, um, and, and probably half of it seems more, than, more or less true. Um, but the depiction of Donald Trump as someone who is so adult that he can't govern himself, that's, that's really, I think, a serious mistake. And you see that every day. Uh, Trump has survival skills, and he has the bully's instinct for the weakness of others, political opponents, and by the way, the American constitutional system. He knows where its weak points are, too, and he uses them. And what are the implications of that? The implications of that is, um, is that Donald Trump is putting pressure on all the unwritten parts of the American democracy that make it work. Um, He's putting pressure, for example, on the idea that law enforcement is supposed to be independent of the president, that the FBI director works for the people, not for the president. He's not part of the president's security detail. Um, he's putting pressure on ethical norms that have, have grown up over the years. I mean, Donald Trump is receiving, we don't know how much, but millions upon millions of dollars in payments from foreign countries, from business partners in the Turkey and the Philippines and in India and the United Arab Emirates without telling anybody what he's getting and what the relationship is between his business partners and their governments. Um, he's got, um, he is, he has broken the decision-making apparatus of the national government for national security. The National Security Council doesn't work. Uh, the State Department is, is emptying out. There is only the military, and, his, and he's trying to make the military a personal expression of his government. So there's a lot to worry about. Are Republicans bothered by that? Because from an outsider's perspective, some seem like it, but the majority don't. Well, the party in Congress is complicit. They've got a, they're in a devil's bargain. 
Republicans in Congress don't like Donald Trump very much more than Democrats in Congress do. But they have, a, they have an agenda, the Republicans in Congress, that is so unpopular that if Donald Trump had not gotten into office on the lucky bounce in the Electoral College, no, I mean, no one else I mean, would have uh, been able to advance it. So they have this rare opportunity to pass into law something that probably couldn't meet the Democratic test. In return, Donald Trump says, fine, I'll sign this tax cut that's very unpopular. I will sign, if you can pass it, Obamacare repeal. You protect me from the consequences of my misconduct. And as a Republican, what do you think about that? Do you still consider yourself one? I'm a registered Republican. I'm a conservative. Um, but uh, I, I see trouble ahead. I mean, when, when I want to conserve things, among the things I want to conserve are the democratic institutions. Also, and maybe this is coming from Canada, which benefits so much from this, the American world leadership. I mean, Donald Trump does not believe in it. He doesn't understand it, and he is wrecking it. Uh, we are in a situation now where the, the structures of peace that have protected Canada and Europe and the Northwest Pacific uh, since the end of the war um, are really in danger in a way they never have been before. And I want to ask you about that in a second, but as a Republican, when you see the complicity in Congress or among certain yeah. segments of the party, what's the line for you? At what point do you, you know, as this travels on or as this moves on, do you say to yourself, I don't know if this is for me or is there no line? Oh, you, you don't say, I mean, the worse it gets, the more it has to be for me. I mean, you run toward trouble, not away from it. And when things are bad, that's when you're, you're needed. Uh, so, you know, if you have... These are my friends, my relatives. This is the world in which I grew up. And when you see it going wrong, you can't shrug it off. I mean, you have to um, do everything you can to uh, pull the body out of the water, even if there's a risk that the body will pull you into the water after it. So what, what happens now? What do you, I mean, you know, a lot of us are, 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 are thinking of that question as we, as we watch well, this. Well, I think panel. the immediate possibility is that Donald Trump will actually have an increase in strength in 2018. The economy, as we said, is strong. The stock market is strong. The tax cut, although it's very biased in favor of certain sectors of the country and certain social classes, will put money into the pockets of tens of millions of people, and they will like it. Uh, so my guess is that Donald Trump gets stronger in 2018, and his grip on the Republican Party gets tighter. Meanwhile, as the Mueller investigation proceeds, we're going to see more and more that Donald Trump did some really improper things with the Russians in 2016, and Republicans are going to have to make a very serious choice about whether they will protect American sovereignty and independence or the Trump presidency. Do you think the public is invested in that decision? One of the hopeful things uh, that I see, and I see, do see hopeful things, I have not written a pessimistic book, is a rising level of civil engagement. Mm -hmm. 2014 saw the lowest voter turnout in the United States in any election since 1942, when the United States was at war and millions of men were overseas. Uh, 2016, again, saw a very listless election with people saying, well, I, I don't like either choice. Uh, I'll vote almost at random. But since Donald Trump took office, since he began to abuse the presidency in the way that he has, since he began to comport himself in a way no president ever has before, you see, as you see it at these women's marches, the first one and then the anniversary march, um, in the level of reader engagement that you have, people really care. Um, they are stepping up. And I think we're in a race between uh, the bad factors in American life and the positive ones. Canadians really care, too. Canadians uh, really you, care. You know, and, and, and I want it, before we go, I, I want to get your opinion or your take as a Canadian. We are sitting here hanging off every word right. of Donald Trump because mostly of NAFTA. Right. How worried should, should Canadians be um, about this unpredictable? Canadians should be worried a lot about NAFTA because Donald Trump 
He doesn't understand what it does. He doesn't understand why it's important. He doesn't understand why it's important to American industries. He said the other day he did not realize that a American agriculture benefits from NAFTA. So you don't know anything. If you don't know that American farms are America's greatest export sector, you know nothing. Uh, but he lives by domination, and he loves, lives to destroy. But the resource is that a lot of people do understand it. The governors of states like uh, Texas and Georgia, these are Republican states, are defending NAFTA. Even Trump, very Trumpist states like Arkansas, the government, uh, government there, the governor there is a strong defender of NAFTA. Uh, so there will be pressures on him. And uh, as with everything, the future depends on what people do. I'll leave it there. Thanks Thank very you. much, Mr. Frum. Good luck Thank with the book. I appreciate it. I'm Vashi Capellas. Thanks for listening to the West Block Podcast. For more, you can head to our website, thewestblock.ca, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and please tune in again next week for another West Block podcast.